Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Season 2 of Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Sean and Patricia McRitchie of McRitchie Winery and Cider Works in Thurmond, North Carolina. Before they settled in North Carolina, Sean and Patricia were both very active in the wine industry on the West Coast. They have been just as active in North Carolina and have been key players in the industry since its early days. We talked to them about how they got started, as well as their love for sparkling wine, which makes several appearances on their tasting menu. They also have an assortment of ciders made from heirloom varietals that grow exceptionally well in the foothills. This episode also features our first wine class with the Wine Mouth segment. Each episode, we will be featuring a new topic relating to wine. For more information, see the show notes on this episode. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. We're here today with Sean and Patricia McRitchie of McRitchie Winery and Cider Works in Thurman, North Carolina. Sean and Patricia, welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So, tell our listeners who you are and how you ended up in Thurman, North Carolina, all places. Wow. <clears throat> that's a that's a quite long question. Um, my name is Sean McRitchie. I've been in the wine business since I was 14. Uh, mostly on the West Coast, in Oregon and in California. And uh, my dad is a retired winemaker, um, so I followed his footsteps in the wine business. And, um, you know, from the early ages of Sokol Blosser Winery um, and on to other wineries, Willamette Valley Vineyards, um, uh, uh, Domain Down in California, Australia, you know, uh, um, just grew up in the business and stayed in it, so I'm a long-term wine winemaker, and uh, ended up here uh, about 20 years ago. Yeah, in 1998, uh, we moved out to yeah. North Carolina, and uh, uh, stayed here. Just uh, like like the area, it's a challenging, interesting area to grow grapes, and uh, we're still here. Yeah, we actually ended up in Thurman specifically because we like. The area we liked Stone Mountain. We liked the proximity to the mountains and the foothills, and just thought it was absolutely beautiful in this part of North Carolina. And so we were looking for property to actually build a house at some point in time, and the opportunity just seemed right. And Sean's parents, who were living in North Carolina at the time, and his father, who was the winemaker, put the bug in our ear and said, "This is what you need to be doing." And so instead of building a house, we built a winery. So, Sean, you have a background in, in the wine industry. Patricia, what's your background in? I'm a lawyer by trade, but I'm in the wine business by desire, I guess. Um, I was a practicing attorney in Oregon before we moved out here, and I had, and Sean and I had three small kids, and just thought this would be a nicer lifestyle to work in a winery, in a vineyard, integrate the kids in the business, and so I never regretted it and has been part of the wine industry um, ever since. Married into it, but happy to be here, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to see how often like the law profession and the wine industry intersect. They do intersect, um, and a lot of lawyers own wineries, and um, I stayed in the legal business a little bit. I consult for alcoholic beverage businesses like distilleries and breweries and wineries. Um, did that a little bit in Oregon and continued to do it in North Carolina. And it's you know, a great way to keep my 
hands in legally and also to know what other wineries and places are doing just to be a real um, productive part of the industry. And you're also actively involved with the Wine Growers Association. I am. I've been on the board of the North Carolina Wine Growers for probably the last 10 or 12 <laughs> years now. And before that, I was the um, executive director of the Yadkin Valley Wine Growers Association. And I've done various projects for the wine industry really ever since we came to North Carolina, a little bit in Oregon as well. And I believe you were part of the folks that worked on establishing the ABA for the Yadkin Valley, is that right? I was. Um, I worked for a winery that was instrumental in getting that um, American Viticultural area designation um, at Shelton Vineyards when we first got here and subsequent to the Yadkin Valley I've also um, wrote the petitions to get Swan Creek designated and Hall River Valley as well. More ABAs to come. That's all right. I think that only builds more of a name for us and kind of puts us on the map even more. So Yeah, I think, yeah. American viticultural areas are really instrumental in helping people understand where their wines are coming from and, you know, what what they'll find in the bottle of a wine from an ABA. So, Sean, you've been uh, really throughout the industry, uh, both uh, everywhere pretty much. So you mentioned it was the family uh, that really got you involved and started in the wine industry, but what's kept you going with it? It's multifaceted. I, I love the agricultural elements of it. It's it's always entertaining. It really is. It's a it's a fun business. You know, you're you're outside a lot. Um, you're dealing with dirt and plants, and I I like that. I love working with my wife. We get to go to work every day and commute together, and it's great. Um, and you know, there's always a challenge, you know, of some type. You know, whether it be the winemaking parts, the lab and chemistry, and and just the allowance to be creative. You know, with with a piece of land um, and in a region, uh, see what you can do with what the weather gives you and and the dirt gives you, and try to make some good wine. I've done it a long time, and I haven't been bored yet. It's always something new to learn. Always something new to try out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when did you make your first wine here in North Carolina? Boy. Uh, 2000 vintage probably. Yeah, yeah, that would have been there. The first we were at Shelton Vineyards. Um, yeah, we, we were, Patricia and I were uh, directing the construction of the vineyard and the production operations of the winery. And um, it was a pretty amazing project, actually. We planted grapes in 90 nine and had a harvest in you know 2000 2000 or 90 yeah 2000 it was just amazing to see how fast plants grow here <laughs> it's it's a different world of agriculture grape growing agriculture here you know to put a vine in the ground in in oregon you might as well just assume you had a four to six year wait before you get crops and the way things grow here you know with good soil and water and you know can be a challenge, but it also can be a quick establishment. So, so yeah, we, we, we produced wine in, in, in uh, 2000, and that would have been my first vintage yeah. here. Yeah, and the first vintage of McRitchie wine would have been 2006. So do you remember going way back what your first wine was that you ever made? Uh, it was probably a white Riesling okay. in, at Willamette Valley Vineyards. <laughs> um, it was a wine that I uh, 
just took some liberty to, 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 to produce and it was very fun to me to adjust the acid myself and the sweetness level and, and actually be in charge of a bottle and I don't know what year that would be. It would have been early. You don't have to disclose the year. Yeah, early, yeah. Time. <laughs> early 90s, probably. Stone but, Ages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was probably my first one that was you know, commercially in charge of. Yeah. And coming to North Carolina in, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and trying to plant, have help Shelton plant a vineyard, what did you consider when selecting the varieties to plant at that time? Often it's it's... The desire of the people who own the sure. business okay. um, until it isn't anymore, you know. Uh, but you know, people want certain wines on a on a on a ticket sure. on, a, on a production plan, and and uh, so they're pretty staple varieties, you know, Chardonnay, Cabernet, and Merlot. Um, and the the fine tuning comes later, but they were pretty traditional varieties, vinifera varieties that we put in the ground there. As well as me too. I, I planted Chardonnay when I came here. I, I thought I had it pretty well figured out, um, and then and then you learn, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, since then, we we've replaced our Chardonnay with with um, with Tremnet. It's a tougher variety. You can do handle the climate a little better. Um, but yeah, I think as a pioneer in a way, in the early early late nineties, you put in what you want and you try it and you realize that it's that's your it's always an experiment just like other wine regions um or when i was a kid in oregon there was a lot of strange varieties like sylvan or uh, miller turgau these weird mm -hmm. german varieties right. mm -hmm. they didn't do well they've all been replaced multiple times and now oregon is pinot for the most part so based on your time here what do you feel are some of the best varieties uh, to or to plant grow? Um, there's some hybrids that I like. There's some hybrids that I don't. Um, you know, I think Vidal Blanc does very well as a nice, clean, balanced, not in-your-face hybrid. Um, Traminet is a, is a nice wine. Um, there's some vinifera varieties that I like. I think Sangiovese is kind of underrated. Uh, it It... If you can appreciate a different style to Sangiovese and don't expect it to some, be a big red monster, uh, there's some really beautiful nuances that come out of the North Carolina climate with Sangiovese. Um, Merlot tends to do pretty well. Petit Verdot does gives you some color. It's a good tool, I think, to use. Sometimes you can make a variety out of it. Um, but there's a few. I think we're still in the trial and error peri period. You know, I think we will be for another couple of decades, most likely. <laughs> Especially with weather changing. Right. So, Patricia, how are you seeing things in the tasting room on that side? Do you see things moving faster than others, or do you see trends that you're spotting? If I knew what was going to happen in the tasting room <laughs> from day to day, I would be rich probably. Um, I think there's a lot of variability, actually. I mean, sometimes all I can say is you, uh, there's no explanation for traffic or whatever, but I think since we've opened, definitely been, uh, you know, steadily increasing number of visitors that are coming through. Um, people understand North Carolina wines better, and um, it's not such a novelty to go to a North Carolina tasting room. There are a lot more wineries and tasting rooms open now, so we're just building mass, but it is unpredictable. I mean, it's weather, 
um, affects people visiting and just other things going on. But, you know, for the most part, it's been really good and hopefully will continue. I mean, I think just the more North Carolina wineries and people making good wines, it'll really benefit everybody. So let's move into talking about some of the wines and ciders and, um, that McCurchie is known for. So when I think of red wine in North Carolina, one of the first that comes to mind is Ray Fire. It's the first North Carolina wine that I fell in love with, personally. Uh, so it's always special to me. So let's talk a little bit about Ray Fire, how it got its name, and what's, what's the typical blend for that from year to year. Yeah. Well, Ring of Fire, I named Ring of Fire because I thought it would be an awesome wine name. And that was what I thought before we even had a winery. So I kind of came at it from the back end. But um, a lot of our wines have kind of double meanings. And Ring of Fire was, I just thought it would be a great name for a red blend. Love June Carter Cash, Johnny Cash. And my mother was a geologist. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and the Pacific gotcha. Rim, Ring of Fire was sort of my way to give her a little subtle shout-out. Um, we try and integrate family in everything we do, so that was the wine for her. And um, we've always made it, started with our first vintage with a Ring of Fire, and it has always had Merlot and Petit Verdot in it. And then we have another blending component. It's depends on the vintage, it depends on Sean, depends on what best suits those particular grapes, but we try and keep the Merlot and the Petit Verdot consistent. Yeah, it's a component wine, you know, component red, so it gives you flexibility with weather, you know, uh, a wet year, dry year, hot year, cool year, whatever, um, you can adjust, you can increase Petit Verdot and decrease Petit, Petit Verdot. And it gives you some control in a in a very variable weather state, you know. So we can build a wine. Um, um, I like red blends too. I think generally they're just usually always good, you know. Um, and in a climate like this, it makes a lot of sense to be able to build a, a red wine. Yeah, it absolutely does. So when you're when you're blending Ring of Fire, what's your approach? Ideally, some consistency to the the name, which would be a you know solid red red table wine. Um, you know, um, Ring of Fire just sounds like it needs to have some some body to it at least if you if you can. Um, so some consistency. That's why the blends are generally the same grapes. Um, it, it when you blend it, it's it's not as complicated as people make it out to be. You try different percentages of Merlot, different percentages of Petit Verdot or Cab Franc or Syrah or whatever you have and, and, and see what makes the best wine. But generally just a solid, big, red table wine, if possible. Yeah, and we'll do blending trials, and I'm very scientific and precise, and I'll want to know exactly how much is going into each thing, and I'll yeah. work things out to the numbers. And Sean, it never ends up like that. It's Sean is very intuitive as a winemaker, so he just goes and he tastes and he figures it out and then gets back to me with what the end result actually is. So I, I, he pays me lip service a little bit when we're doing <laughs> blending, and and I know that, so it, it all works out. But but before yeah. it goes in the bottle, she gets to taste everything. I mean, yeah, and, that's and approve it. Of it. And of course, I don't actually make the blends until you check it. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, so, dear. So Patricia, you mentioned uh, Sean's more intuitive. So Sean, how would you how would you describe your winemaking style? 
uh, probably pretty unusual. Uh, I'm a very mechanical person. I like the machinery of winemaking. I like the, you know, the the operations in a cellar. You know, that's my background. Um, intuitive comes from experience, though, too. You know, when you're, you know, you, you, I know what needs to be done in the lab, absolutely, but. Uh, you know, do I sit there and do a half percentage of this or that? No, you know, it's it's a flavor. Uh, you know, after 40 years in the business, you you are allowed some some gut, you know, feeling. Sometimes it fails me though. Sometimes I say, oh boy, I should have gone the analogy approach, you know. Um, but uh, but generally, it's it's intuitive. You, you know what to do. You know what's supposed to be done, and it's repetitious, you know, um, in yeah. production. Yeah, our youngest son, who's learning to be a winemaker right now, taking enology courses, is always amazed that Sean can spot on the amount of sulfur or whatever he's adding to a wine, just just knows what it needs. And Asher will try and measure everything out and be very precise and everything, and then Sean can really just, I yeah. mean, pretty much spot on know what needs to be done. Yeah. It drives Asher crazy. That's awesome. yeah, and, and I don't recommend it. It, it, it does come from the, the 40 years of doing sure. this, too. Um, um, but, you know, I'd say in terms of a small production, you know, or medium-sized production winery, you know, we're as well-equipped as, as, you know, any large winery. Um, so the equipment to me is very important to be able to, to use, and, and it makes better wine, yeah. Yeah, definitely worth putting the investment into that to make sure you can actually do what you needed to do. Yeah. Exactly. And Patty let me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know any better. Please? Yeah. Sean had enough experience that I believed him when he said he needed something. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's get it. So besides Ring of Fire, there's some other red blends. Mm -hmm. So talk about a few of those. Um, one of our red blends is Arcturus, which is a Sangiovese um, dominant blend, and that one was a wine that my oldest son, before he decided he was going to be a computer scientist and was working with us at the winery, um, he worked with his father on, and Aiden at one point in time thought he was going to be an astrophysicist, and so I named Arcturus after a star for my oldest son when he was of age. That was the wine that was for him. And all of our children get a wine, a red blend, named for them, or in their honor, I guess. And so Arcturus was the Sangiovese-based red blend for, for Aiden. Mm -hmm. And then Sapre Aude is the red blend that was a Petit Verdot, heavy red blend that was for our oldest daughter, Ava. And she named that wine, and Sapriade means dare to know or dare to be wise. And she picked that name because when Sean especially dropped her off at high school, she would always hear, you know, you have a brain, don't be afraid to use it. So she took that every to heart. Every single day. Every, yeah, every single day. I drove them nuts. That was my job. Yeah. So yeah. that's the name for the wine that was in her honor. And Asher, we're still working on Asher. He's only 20, so he'll, he'll get his red blend soon. But other red blends we've done, we did a red blend for the River Run uh, Film Festival in Winston-Salem, which we sponsor every year. And it was kind of a lighter-styled red blend. And I'm trying to think what, oh, we did road. The Road, which is um, the only red that we've done where we use red grapes from outside of the Yadkin Valley, and we source some from the southern part of North Carolina. But um, The Road is 
a really nice blend. It's usually a Cab Franc Merlot dominant blend. So those are the, our main blends, and you know, depending on the season, we there might be another grape and another blend. But we really like red blends in general, mm. just because we find that in North Carolina they seem to bring out the best in all the grapes. Yeah. So we tend toward blends more than straight varietal bottlings. But occasionally, you get a straight varietal Merlot. We do. Tito. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So currently you have us the 16 Merlot out. Currently we have the 16 Merlot out. And what usually happens with Sean is we he wants to create a great ring of fire. So we're not all estate grown um, grapes in our at our winery, but so he'll look for the best grapes he can find in the Yakin Valley and then his eye first is toward creating a great ring of fire and then whatever is left might be a varietal bottling or another blend, but it kind of goes ring of fire is king, and then we work down mm-hmm. from there. So yeah, but no, yeah. Sometimes a variety is 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 acceptable and de- delicious, and you want to save it. Um, so so we, you know, like that Merlot was just nice to have by itself, and and not turn it into you know not lose that distinct varietal character. Let's save it, and you know we'll usually do small specific varietal runs, you know, 100, 200 cases, you know, and then the Ring of Fire is usually a larger, larger run. So what is your usual case production per year? Between one and 2,000 cases of the, the vinifera or table wines, and then cider kind of fluctuates right. up and down or, you know, because it's harder to tell with cider since we keg a lot of cider and We'll talk about cider in just a few minutes. Yeah, but you, so we've, we've talked about red blends, but you also put out some white wines as well. So one of those is uh, one that you don't find too many other places, the Muscat Blanc. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that wine. Um, it's just a fun grape when you can find it and when it's good enough to pick. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, sometimes there's enough floral fragrance you know and, and varietal character that is worth picking and producing as a as a as a single varietal um <clears throat> sometimes it is sometimes it isn't um, i have kind of an affection for that alsatian grape I, I worked in alsace for a while and um liked the dry you know rieslings and they had some dry muscats and i really wanted to you know, I had some juice. I thought, let's let's do this. Uh, try to replicate what what I loved in Alsace. You know, it's really just mostly food and dry white wines were so good. So I just tried to replicate it. You know, so let's let's just do it. Let's let's let it go to zero bricks and not leave any RS in it and see what happens. And it turned out turned out pretty good. Um, it's unusual. Most of the time, Muscat is is left with some RS in it and. Or back sweetened with you know, cane sugar, but we just left it left it alone as a as a serious you know um, dry white wine. It was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I wouldn't sweeten it if you know it, it, nothing against sweetening. It just just was nice. You know, it was a nice dry white. Yeah, the thirteen was one of my favorite white wines in the state. The Muscat. Yeah, yeah. the sixteen now is. It's pretty much to that point where the 13 was when it was yeah. added. It's a white that ages well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Just the character Eastern changes, but in a really appealing way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. 
Sometimes you've also done a couple other whites too. So one consistent one that you always have on the tasting, it seems, is the falling water. Yeah, we've always done, when we first started working with Traminette, we weren't, um, we really liked it a lot and we did uh, straight Traminette and then um, had other white grapes that we weren't quite sure what to do with or, and then we realized that if we blended them with the Traminette, it kind of gave a, um, just a really interesting character to it. Not, it toned it down a little bit. Traminette can be a pretty big um, floral aromatic grape. And so Falling Water was a, kind of an attempt to rein it in a little bit almost and just make a nice um, food-friendly, drinkable white that we could do consistently from year to year. Yeah. So it's one of three. We have three wines that we call our American classics, and Ring of Fire is the red blend that's in that series. And Falling Water is the white. And Pale Rider is our dry rosé, which would be the third of the triumvirate, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, we, we really like Traminette, but it's nice to have a toned-down version of it as well. Yeah. It's another, you know, a, a solution you know, to a, a constructible wine. You know, a, you want a nice white wine that doesn't have these edges that might not be appealing, so you can tone them down. There's nothing different about creating a red blend or a white blend. It's it's, it's still wine. Uh, Traminet can be a little aggressive occasionally. You know, it has a petroly and sometimes a little tannin to it. They have very thick skins. It, it can be a little tough. So sometimes adding a Pinot Gris or a, you know, or a Chardonnay. Uh, Chardonnay or Riesling, if you have it, you know, can, can help. But same thing. We don't do the same thing every year. Um, it just gives you a flexibility. All right. So we're talking about the still wines. Let's head on ciders. But first, we're going to take a quick little break, and then we'll be right back with ciders. It's time for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Welcome, Jesse and Jessica. How are you two today? We're great, thank you. Excellent. So what topic do you have prepared for us? Today we're going to be talking a little bit about winemaking. So I guess we can just dig right in on terms. Yeah. Perfect. And Jesse's going to be the expert on this because she has assisted in many a harvest. And let's just put expert in quotations. Okay. <laughs> <Start> <laughs> <off>. <laughs> Relative expert. Um, I'm just here for comedic relief. <laughs> Um, but yes, so we'll talk about winemaking. Yeah, I guess we'll just start at the beginning. So, yeah. so you pick your grapes, and then I guess the first term that's kind of convoluted is crush. So crush is done post-harvest, before fermentation, and this kicks off the winemaking process. So crush technically is the process of breaking the skins of the grapes, which releases some of the juice. That makes sense. You want to actually have liquid in your wine. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, now, for reds, obviously, fermentation goes better if the skins are broken. But crush doesn't always have to be done. So, like, with white grapes, it's not always done because those grapes usually go to the press instead. So that skin contact is limited. And just to be a little more gentle on the grapes. So it's a, a, a different way of approaching it then. Yeah. You still get liquid, but it's just a little more gentle. So crush, a lot of times in the winery they call the area where all this happens the crush pad so next would be press and that's specifically for white wine and white grapes and press i guess kind of has two definitions so 
It's the act of squeezing the juice out of the grapes, but also it's the name of the machine that does the act of squeezing the juice out of the grape. So uh, a source of possible confusion. (laughs) For red grapes, press is done after fermentation, if it's going to be done. Mm -hmm. And for white grapes, it's done pre-fermentation. What's fermentation? (laughs) That's the fun part. Yeah, this is the fun part. This is where the magic happens. Fermentation is the actual process of converting sugar into alcohol. So you have yeast, either that naturally is occurring or is added, and that is going to town on all the sugar that's in the grape juice, like a Thanksgiving buffet, just like (laughs) going to town, eating all that yummy sugar. So when the yeast eats all the sugar or eats the sugar in the juice, um, it's converting the sugar into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Yes. And it dies in the process. Yeah. RIP yeast. Thank you for your service. So fermentation can be done in lots of different kinds of containers, anything from plastic tubs, concrete barrels, tanks. Most people in North Carolina are using tanks for fermentation is what we've seen. Mm -hmm. Like I was saying, you can either do fermentation with yeast that's added or kind of a new old movement is using yeast that was naturally occurring on the grape skins. So you mentioned the yeast dies. What happens to the yeast afterward? So when it dies, it falls to the bottom, and then we get a new wine term called lees. Yeah, and that's L-E-E-S. And so that is the dead yeast that falls to the bottom. And um, a lot of times, winemakers will remove the wine from all that junk at the bottom. Sometimes it's left and can be stirred in to add extra flavor and characteristic to the wine. And that's called surly aging, Mm -hmm. which... Is spelled differently, oddly enough, and that's L-I-E. Yeah. Thank you, French people, for that. <laughs> and let's not forget batonage. Yeah, and so that's on the lees. So that is just a winemaking choice and adds, like Jesse was saying, more characteristics to the wine. So it's really like what you're going for. But in general, the wine is going to be removed from mm-hmm. the dead yeast. And does that process have a name? Why, yes, it does. Thank you for asking. That is called racking. And racking is just the process of moving wine from one container to another. And this happens countless times throughout the winemaking process, you know, all the way up until it's put into the bottle. Just anytime you're moving it, it's called racking. So as our listeners may or may not know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the winemaking uh, business. So do you two have a favorite wine term for yourselves? I have been geeking out over Surly because I love to tell people about, oh yeah, this, like Trader Joe's has a really good one right now um, that I got for a book club that I hosted at my house recently. And I was like, oh, if you guys like white wine, you should try this because it's way better. And then I got to, you know, tell them all about the leads and how this was, you know, using the leads to um, give it that extra And I think everybody in my book club went out to Trader Joe's and bought that bottle the next day. (laughs) So that's one for me. Um, I think mine is malolactic fermentation just because um, it's kind of a secondary fermentation. It's a bacteria that eats the, well, it doesn't eat. It converts the malic acid in wine to lactic acid, which is super geeky as well. But most people don't know that that's being added to convert acid for pretty much every red wine you drink Mm -hmm. and it's called fermentation but it's not really fermentation Mm -hmm. yeah 
Interesting. Yeah, and that's popular with your buttery Chardonnays because of the yeah. creamy texture that it provides. Right, where it should not be done, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not huge fans of the buttery Chardonnays. See, we love we love Chardonnay any way you can do it. Yeah, and buttery is well, good for. We'll have to bring you some bottles. Yeah. <laughs> So from lees to malolactic fermentation, we're hearing from the experts of their favorite terms. Uh, <laughs> Jesse and Jessica, we thank you very much for this quick little intro 101 for some of the winemaking terms. And uh, we'll catch you next time. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E. M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. Okay, so let's talk cider and sparkling wine. How about that? So, Sounds good. Um, consistently, I think you guys were the first cidery in kind of the modern history in North Carolina. So let's talk about why you decided to add cider to the mix and how it's, in, most, in a lot of places, it's more associated with beer culture, but cider is really more like wine. Uh, I grew up around cider. Um, I, I, you know, I think one of my mentors, uh, Fred Arterberry, um, was a great winemaker, and uh, he produced cider too. And it's just another wine, you know. He carbonated it, and he had a very clean style. I always liked watching Fred work. He was very clean in his winery. He was a really great, you know, mentor just to watch him work in his winery. It's just a little tiny place in a tow truck garage in McMinnville, Oregon. And I could walk by his place, you know, on my way home from school. And it was just kind of, it's just cool. That's all I can say. He had a thick beard, smoked a pipe, and told cool stories, and we drink cider, you know, on my way home. And from it, high school. <laughs> it, was, it was a blast. It was, it was just fun. You know? so, so I just, cider was just kind of part of me when I was growing up. And, and uh, and I, I liked his style of cider. It was just apples, technical winemaking. It wasn't, you know, doctored up in any way. It was just apples and bubbles, and, and I liked that. So I, I just thought it was kind of cool to have in our place, you know. Um, and we uh, uh, produced it from the beginning um, and stuck to a style pretty much um, as, as apples, as the as the key you know uh, we do a couple of blended ciders just for seasonal stuff but we don't go go too far with with um, uh, other flavorings so talk to us a little bit about the apples because when you think about wines you can name off several different wine grapes but what about apples well apples there's probably more apples in the world than there are grapes and that for me was one of the important things about doing cider was that there were a lot of really interesting mountain-grown apples available to us in North Carolina that were um, just nice spaces for a good, complex cider. And so we um, have sourced our apples locally from the Brushy Mountains or down outside Hendersonville. We've gone into Virginia a couple of times when things happen to the apple harvest in North Carolina, which, just like grapes, the bad things happen. Mm-hmm. So um, we've used, we try to use interesting varietals, um, whatever we can get our hands on. We typically use a base of something like a stamen 
or um, uh, Arkansas Black we've used. We've probably tried 30 or 40 different apples in our blends. Some work better than others, but we're always experimenting or seeing what you know seems to be interesting. And we've planted about 23 varietals on site, and the varieties that we have on site, um, we have a lot of Grimes Golden, which was the apple that Thomas Jefferson used. Um, it's grown in the kind of mid-Atlantic area, North Carolina, going south into North Carolina. And it's a good base apple, has all the right components for a good complex cider. And then we also have some um, crab apples. What I tried to do when I planted the orchard here was pick varieties that demonstrate all the different characteristics of a good cider, like bitter sharp and bitter sweet and all those different things to make a interesting cider. And for us, and for me especially, I'm always a little surprised when people wonder why we do cider too, because I've always thought of it as just a wine. It's made with apples, right. but it is a wine. It's a sparkling wine, so it's very natural to have cider, I think. It's just you know an additional variety on our tasting sheet and it's been a great use of a North Carolina product mm -hmm. and I mean apples are awesome they're just so interesting so many flavors out there and the fact that people are now planting more interesting apples and using more interesting apples is you know really pretty exciting for the apple lovers out there which I'm on the radio but I'm raised my hand yes I'm an apple lover so I, I think it's great you know it's so I'm really mm -hmm. happy that we started with cider and that we still can make ciders and that the cider world has exploded. And you know. Yeah, growing up and having grown up in Wilkes County, I'm a little surprised that there's not more cideries. Yeah. I know, I yeah. know, a lot of a lot of the cider in the state though is sourced from apples grown in Wilkes County, but yeah. um, there's. Yeah, well, we were surprised that you know since we've been making cider since 2006 that we were the only cidery in North Carolina for several right. years and then we were one of very few and we're still the, really the only one in probably the whole Yadkin Valley. I mean right. there might be a few making of cider here and there but really not of any volume or right. you know it's just it is interesting because we are in the foothills where apples grow. Which exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned it is more like a wine product so how does it uh, what are some of the similarities or differences when you're making cider versus wine? Um, really very little difference. I mean, there's a tiny bit of chemistry difference. Uh, they don't, they tend to have malic acid and it's uh, tartaric. They, the stability of them is, is different. The sugar content is, is lower. So fermentations are a little faster. Apple comes in at about, you know, uh, 12 bricks if that, and, and the standard table wine is, you know, 24 bricks usually. So the fermentation behaves a little bit different. Um, uh, but it's just a wine. It's just another wine. Uh, the we condition it a little different. Usually we carbonate it. You know, um, uh, just it, it tends to add a little lift to the to the wine. Um, but uh, it's it's really standard. You know, same equipment other than the carbonation process. Yeah. And we you grind the apples before oh, yeah, you yeah. press them. So the beginning yeah. of the process is a little bit different. So yeah. you need to break it down a little bit in a in a different way yeah. than with grapes and a different type of press is used normally because yeah, yeah. the way you extract juice is a little bit different. I forgot all that. Yeah, all, all, that, all oh, the yeah. production stuff that oh, the yeah. winemaker knows, uh, you forgot. But, but you, you but tend to put them in barrels. You know, you can. There's no real rules not to, but 
I don't know. I, I wouldn't mind being a little more experimental. I've always thought about doing cubed cider, you know, if I can figure it out. Um, it seems I've had a couple that I really like. They're really weird. Uh, you have to be very careful, though, too, when you do some of these bacterial-type ciders where you introduce something bad into the winery that you don't want in the rest of your grapes, like Britannomyces. Um, you have to be very careful. But, but I, lo- I love the process of some of that. The, I think it's called keeving, where you, you know, essentially develop a, a, a top coat of bacterial molds and things like that to keep mm-hmm. it. Sound, it doesn't sound very pretty, but I've had some ex- pretty, pretty nice wines. Uh, yeah. Uh, oxidized and uh, but pretty flavorful um, but someday I might, I might might do do something crazy out in the woods with a batch of apples I don't know <laughs> <laughs> with the moonshine we're doing yeah <laughs> so you mentioned flavors as well so what kind of flavors of cider do you have in the spring we do a sour cherry cider that's inspired by the giant sour cherry tree that's in the front of our uh, tasting room and in the fall, we do a cranberry. So that kind of brings in the holiday spirit, I guess, for mm-hmm. us. We, we know it's getting down to the wire when the mm-hmm. cranberry cider comes out. But yeah, so those right now are the only two. We've played around with some other stuff, but we really like the idea of the apples shining through. Mm-hmm. We, you know, that of being just a refreshing, crisp, apple-centric beverage. And those flavors are in addition to the standard year-round ciders you have? They are. Yeah, we usually do a uh, dry cider where we ferment completely dry, so um, that's a good um, workhorse for us. And then we do what we call our house blend, which is slightly off dry, and then the two fruit ciders. Yeah. that we we try and because it is just in to us as an additional wine on our list of wines we we don't get too crazy with a long list of ciders yeah try and keep yeah. it a little pure let's talk sparkling wine so as a different variety of styles of sparkling wine so talk about uh, your what 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 you've done in the past and anything that you might look forward to doing in the future uh, sparkling wine is just part of my background, just, just through working in a multitude of wineries. Um, I like the process. It's fascinating to me. It's, 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 a, it's a very challenging um, wine to produce, especially in a small scale. Um, you have to be kind of creative with equipment because it's easy to go spend you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on equipment. Or you'd be creative and build some of these, you know, small ways of doing, you know, hundred case batches. Um, but uh, sparkling wine is good. Uh, you know, it, it's just good. You know, it tastes good with with crab cakes. It, it yeah, it tastes good on a hot summer day. And I kind of like to make things we like to drink. Um, and it's the the neat thing I think about this our winery in particular is it's it. We don't need to worry if I make a 50 case batch, I can, you know, in a 50,000 case winery, 100,000 case winery, you don't have equipment usually to do that, nor do you want to take the time to to do those kind of things often. Um, So I can experiment around. I can can mess around with Sangiovese sparkling wine if I want to and, and make 50 cases or 500 cases or whatever. I think that's the funnest thing about working in our, in our yeah. operation. 
And sometimes the grapes, you know, vintage may give you grapes that aren't optimal for, you know, a certain style of production, but for a sparkling wine, they might be just right. So it gives us another tool for, you know, in North Carolina is a challenging growing environment and sometimes the grapes don't get quite as ripe as we may like them to be or the acids might be off or they're just, you know, certain things that don't go quite the way we would want them to go for certain things but you know find the silver lining and you know sparkling yeah. wine might be the perfect thing for them exactly. so when you can be experimental you know and a sparkling wine might not be it might you know not be a gamble that pays off but you know it's nice to have that extra tool and mm-hmm. an extra um, way of utilizing a grape yeah it, it, it could be a big benefit, you know, to watching the weather change. You know, we might only get grapes that ripen to 18 bricks. And there you go. We can do it. When life give you lemons, make sparkling wine. Yeah. That's what I've exactly. always said. Yeah. Exactly. That's... That's pretty much what happened in Champagne, right? It was they couldn't ferment their Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, got stuck and they bottled it and now Champagne. Yeah. So what type of sparkling wines do you produce here then? Nothing's etched in stone in terms of we 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 we've made the Sangiovese, we made a Blanc de Blanc, you know, Chardonnay, uh, we did a Gewurztraminer, <laughs> we did a what are they all? Um, Petit Verdot. Petit Verdot. Yeah. I mean, we've uh, done Riesling. Pretty much every every style breaking. of uh, sparkling wine from traditional method to the Petal and Natural, and forced carbonation. Mm-hmm. and uh, Charmat. So the we've done all of the big four s- techniques in making sparkling wine. Yeah. And, you know, the reason we choose any particular one is dependent on the grapes, dependent on the year, dependent on mm-hmm. our energy. Mm-hmm. So as we were yeah. counting up, sometimes doing a traditional method sparkling wine, we might have to hand... <laughs> manipulate that bottle of wine 52 times which is a lot when you can do another style of sparkling wine and it's much less labor intensive and you know that's you're just trying to make a fun bottle of wine i think it also is kind of the intuitive part you know a lot to me a lot of the wines are decided on at the crush pad you know you get the grapes off at the end of the year they're delivered you see them you taste them you do the chemistry what can this be you know Sometimes you don't quite know what it's going to be out in the vineyard or, you know, what you really want might be this. But at the end of the day, the grapes show up. What are they? What can I do? Let's do sparkling wine. Let's do pet nat. Let's do a solid barrel-aged something, you know. And so, so it very much is based on what you end up with and what you find. You know, that's, yeah. that's the job. And since we're not all estate grapes, we have that flexibility that when we're out looking Um, at vineyards during the growing season trying to decide you know what's going to be available and what do we like what don't we like you know it's another um, opportunity to utilize grapes that somebody's growing in a way that we might not have thought of before but just having that kind of ultimate flexibility not only in grape choices but grape styles I guess is, is nice and we're never wed to a particular we have to have certain grapes Every year, we want our tasting list or our, our wine profile, whatever, to be exactly the same every year. So that kind of makes people a little crazy because we don't have the same wines from year to year. But 
you know, we really are trying to um, utilize the grapes in the best way possible um, and source the best grapes that we can every year. So we're willing to be a little bit unorthodox or, you know, flexible and drop out a blend or grape one year because it's just not really there in terms of yeah. quality or quantity sometimes, whatever. But it's nice to be able to do a variety of things. And we're fortunate that Sean does have the skill and the expertise to do things like sparkling wines because it is a real challenge. It, you know, takes a lot of experience and knowledge to do it properly. No, you don't always get it right. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> so um, what would you say, this is always one of the toughest questions, what would you say is your favorite wine, either currently on your list or of all time that you've made or that you've had here? Um, can I, you want to answer first? You go first. Yes. <laughs> I have some wines that are not released right now. Uh, I mean, that I'm super proud of. And not that, you know, we, nothing I did any different. We just found some good grapes and, you know, and, uh, uh, they turned out nice. That's all. Um, but I like our 2016 Ring Fire downstairs, uh, un, unreleased yet. Is that right? It's unreleased, yeah. yeah or, um, but I mean, Finney's left by the time we're ready yeah, to release it. Yeah, we keep it, taking it home. Like, I mean, yeah. It's like, yeah. Save us a few long. Yeah, yeah. But no, it just, just turned out. It was a nice vintage, and that particular blend, I think, is really tasty. I mean, mm-hmm. at least I do, you know. And, uh, but yeah, it's just, just, uh, just turned out. It's balanced. Maybe it's just the point in time it's really good right now I, I, I don't know that's the weird thing about wine too you know you, you know it changes a bit but it's yeah. pretty killer right now it is good and um, I don't know that I have a favorite or all time favorite I mean I like I'm very um, in the moment with my wine preference and so what I think is the best thing I've ever drunk on one day may not be the same the next mm. day and I you know I'm, I'm pretty food oriented with wine too mm. so it you know I'll have something that it's like I can't this is so good this is the best thing I've ever had and I'm a little mercurial I guess and fickle but I mm. you know it, it does change a lot and mm. you know season whatever but Ring of Fire is pretty just across the board has always been pretty solid and um, I'm a Chardonnay lover. I've always, I, I really like Chardonnay. I always have. And when um, we, when we had our estate vineyard with Chardonnay, Sean put out some pretty solid, delicious Chardonnays. Um, and when we can source good Chardonnay, when we actually have a Chardonnay, it'll come out in um, January that we purchased from a local vineyard, and it's really nice. I'm really looking forward to that. But you know, so those are probably my. If I had a favorite, if I really had to choose, I would say the Ring of Fire, one of our Chardonnays. One time, just just to add, um, I made a Pink Lady cider that just turned out really nice. It was just it was just a particular batch of, of apples, you know. Again, you didn't make it any different than you do another batch for the most part, you know. Didn't use a different yeast or different filter pads or anything like that, but it just was a really good batch of apples, you know, and and. I, um, it was just a really good one. Um, yeah. And after we say all that, I completely forgot about our sparkling wine. But I, I really like sparkling wine. So I could that would be like choosing one of my children. I like sparkling wine. So any of the sparkling yeah. wines would be up there with, among my favorites. Yeah. I like so. that Sangiovese we had today. It was kind of that was kind of fun. Yeah. It was yeah. kind of crazy, but but it was especially with the pairing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, that pairing was good pairing. That was, I, I'm, I'm going to get some more of that. So, so tell us a little bit about the pairing, Patricia. Since <laughs> well, we had a sparkling event uh, today, a bunch of our sparkling wines and some guest wines, and one of the things that I paired was our Petalant Natural Petite Verdot with peanut butter and raspberry jelly. <laughs> And it was delightful. It, it, was, was, it was just, it was a shocker it was how good it was. It was and great, yeah. yeah, I mean, and if you haven't tried it, you need to try it. You yeah. Find a great pet nat or sparkling wine, peanut butter and jelly. Life changing. Really, really, <laughs> really nice. I mean, surprising. And then talk about the Sanjay Rose and the Hook Slider. Oh, yeah, and then the Sanju, we have a, a traditional method um, Sangiovese rosé sparkling wine, and I paired it with some just kind of North Carolina barbecue with an Arkansas sauce on it, but just had that everything you want in a pairing was the, the fattiness of the pork and the spice in the, the sauce paired with that Sangiovese was just really good. So, again... Grab some barbecue and your favorite sparkling wine and try it. It's yeah. really, really it was nice. Sunny Walker Suey Sauce. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was, yeah. Think outside the box a little bit. Absolutely. So, uh, what would be some advice that you would give someone who might be interested in starting a vineyard or winery or a cidery or an apple orchard? Hmm. Patty? Sean? <laughs> uh, you have to love it. You have to be willing to work really hard. Uh, you better love hard work and not a lot of money. <laughs> um, uh, you're a farmer. You know, you're a farmer. You're a farmer that takes his crop and makes it harder to work with. You know, uh, you know, you better love grapes and you better love the challenges of a particularly challenging crop to grow. It's not. It's not hay. It's not soybeans. It's not corn. It's weird little little fruits that, that, that are cranky and don't like to grow sometimes. Um, you know, and then and that's just the grapes, you know, you gotta pick them, it's hot weather, it's uh, just, you just better love what you're doing uh, if, if you can get into it. Yeah, and obviously we much, must love it because we've yeah. been doing it for <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time. Forever now, but yeah, just, you know, keep your eyes open, yeah. be aware of the industry you're getting into because there are some really great things about it but it is challenging and you have to wear a lot of hats if you're a, especially if you're a smaller winery and vineyard but you know those hats are they're nice yeah. ones my dad always said something this kind of definitely he would say he would tell you to check with your psychologist first <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. it's pretty good advice really <laughs> do it for the right reasons <laughs> so what do you think the future of North Carolina wine looks like Ooh, that's a, that's a that's an interesting question because that's a question that's been asked about the wine industry in general around the world. Like, what's the future holding? Um, I don't know. It's 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 still a little wild westy out here. If you ask me, I grew up in Washington State and saw the the industry started and then it faded and then took off like gangbusters and. Who would have ever thought that there? And Oregon, kind of the same thing. So North Carolina, my perception, is still in those early, early stages. So, you know, it's, it's got potential. It's got its challenges for sure, but I think a lot of regions have challenges as well. And 
Yeah. You know, I think the people that are part of the industry just need to keep um, plugging away and being supportive of the industry they're in and, you know, and be awesome to have a lot of people out there supporting the North Carolina wine industry and, you know, kind of understanding what we're all about. And we've got a lot of um, and beautiful vineyards, beautiful winery, beautiful other things to do in North Carolina around wineries, and it's good integration. It's a beautiful state, you know. I think there's room for this kind of tourism, and you know, it, it, there's really wonderful food here too. You know, I think that the culinary and the wine, you know, will definitely develop further. You know, um, we just need to all learn, you know, our what what we're growing and try to get the real expression of, of what's coming out of the weather. I think the best example is Sangiovese um, for some weird reason that comes to mind because I've actually had some really neat, stylistically incorrect, but really good, very light colored, um, you know, nice acid balance, um, beautiful color, uh, light-bodied Sangiovese that was delicious. You know, they were picked at 18 bricks, which is, you know, like, what, 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 what's, how, how do you do that? You know, um, but that could be a style. That could be what North Carolina is about. You know, just a, you know, a totally different take on just, say, Sangiovese, for example. You know, we have to coax that out of the, the agriculture, you know, I think. And we will. We're getting there. So what's left the biggest impact to you, on you over the years? That I like to work with my wife. She's yeah. fun. <laughs> it's fun. We're a good team. So sweet. Yeah. We're 24-7. No mm -hmm. kidding. We're together all the time. Which, yeah, I mean, being in the wine industry for sure has had a huge impact on our family just because we've been able to integrate our kids in the business. Yeah. Um, our, we have a lot of family members back on the West Coast that are in the business. So it's really... Um, afforded us a lot of opportunities that having another type of job wouldn't have. And so I'm, I, you didn't ask if we were grateful for it, but I would say that we, we are grateful for the wine industry and, you know, mm -hmm. our part in it. So what do you most look forward to in the future for yourselves and, and the preaching winery and sidewalks? Um, I think just that, you know, we continue to be able to do what we do. I mean, we definitely don't take it lightly that people buy our product and come out to see us and, you know, are supportive of us and the, and the you know, wine industry in general. But, you know, we, we would definitely like to see an increase in tourism and visitation and good wines being made in this part of the state, this Part of Thurmond, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, just more of the same. Just mm -hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of nice people that come out to visit in wineries, and mm -hmm. so we encourage everybody to come out, keep it up. So, what's one thing you want your customers to know when they come to visit? Um, I don't know if it's as much what we want them to know, but I think what we would like for them to experience is like just a real genuine desire on our part, I guess, to provide them with an excellent experience, what, you know, educational, tasty, you know, we hope that they find a wine that they really like and that they have a nice time here. We hope they're treated well, um, that 
you know, we always wanted to be a small winery. We have worked at large wineries, but our style is to just be small and intimate. And, you know, going forward in the future, we'd like to do um, a lot of more intimate events. Um, we kind of like the idea of hand-selling a bottle of wine and, you know, helping people understand why what we do is important to us and having them part of it is important to us. And so, did that answer your question? I yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just, we, we want, it's not our home, but we want people to feel like that they're as welcome as they would be in our home. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, it's important to us. Yeah. So any, as we wind up, kind of wind up here today, any final things uh, you'd like to share with our listeners or? Oh boy. Sorry. Besides come visit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That seems so self-serving. Yeah. But um, yeah, just no, I mean, we're, the, thank you like for to thank you guys for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for, thank you for, for doing for this. Thank you for and being interested in our industry and, mm -hmm. and part of it. And, and as well as the customers, I think. I think one thing that I always kind of preached a little bit, but when you know you're a consumer in North Carolina and you buy a piece of agriculture, you know, realize what's happening. You know, you're you're keeping land open that's agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, you're not, you know, freighting in something from who knows where. You know, a carbon footprint is something to think about. Um, you know, uh, you know. The, I think some of the choices we make here to make wine are very, very environmental, you know, uh, conscious, you know, and that's the honest truth, you know, it's not just words. Um, you know, so consumer decisions, you know, it, it affects, you know, um, the state they live in. Um, so, yeah, buy North Carolina wine. Just tax dollars local. Yeah. yeah, we fully support that. Yeah, so, yeah. That's well, a good thing. Sean and Patricia, thank you so much for having us here today to do the interview and put you on the podcast. We greatly appreciate all that you guys have done for the industry uh, and really enjoyed the conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we did as well. Yeah, we appreciate it yeah. very Thanks much. Thanks for having us. Really, yeah. really. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Sean and Patricia. If you haven't been out for a visit, we highly recommend making a trip. And thanks again to the Wine Mouths for joining us for our first segment, Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free LLC production.